Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Good morning and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we look over the next seven days and try to divine what we can. I'm Andrew Harrison. Remember, listeners, you can help the Bunker to keep going and get all of our podcasts ad-free and early when you support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Joining me this morning to explain the week ahead, it's Gavin Esler. How are you, Gavin? Good morning. I'm very well. I'm looking out at uh, the trees uh, with the leaves all coming out and beautiful sunshine. So what could be better for <laughs> Well, at, at least somebody is. That, that's good to hear. So uh, the first and major issue we're going to be dealing with, obviously, is Russia's Victory Day Parade, uh, the anniversary of the end of the Second World War, and what Vladimir Putin may or may not announce at his speech at that event. The parade is coming a day after the Russians bombed a village school in eastern Ukraine, killing around 60 people. Uh, the Kremlin has dismissed the idea that Putin might officially declare war on Ukraine in order to be able to mobilise reservists or even civilians into his army. I mean, Gavin, it's it's widely believed that Putin had intended to declare victory in Ukraine on May the 9th. But of course, the plans have been a bit of a disaster. Is is he boxed in by the need to announce something on a day that is of massive significance to, the, to Russia? Well, given that Putin's track record has been to tell you that black is white and what you're seeing with your own eyes isn't actually existing, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he says it has been a great victory, but there's still more work to do. Um, you know, the regime is rotten to its core, as I think I think we know, and the morality of their soldiers just simply doesn't exist. That they're, But what has often struck me is that the Russians' view of history is so bent about World War II. They were on the Nazis' side when it started. That's why it started, you know, oh. the Nazi-Soviet pact. They then invaded Finland in 1939, and it didn't go well for them because they were actually very unprepared and because the, the Stalinist system didn't work. And when it came to the end of the war, the peace was actually signed by the uh, Americans, British and Germans on May the 8th, 1945. Stalin insisted on a separate peace, and that was the beginning of the division of Europe. So the whole Russian view of history has been utterly skewed by their sense of the great patriotic war, which only really became a war for them because the Nazis invaded them. They didn't choose to uh, stand up to Nazism. And the Nazis got within 40 miles of Moscow. So the whole thing is rotten to the core. And it would be hardly surprising, whatever Putin says today, if it's simply another pack of lies. He does continue to try and resent the war uh, in in terms of Nazism. Uh, the Russians have been force fed this this idea of de- denazification. But Zelensky, of course, being a master of optics and messaging, uh, his his message today is that uh, the Russians are the new Nazis, and Ukraine will defeat them. I mean, the UK will today accuse Putin of mirroring the Nazis. This this deep importance of the Second World War, not just to Russia, but also you know, to, to the whole of Europe. Does, does it make it harder to sow seeds of doubt about the Ukraine war in the Russian population, even if you can reach them? Because it is such a kind of an article of faith. 
Yes, uh, the, it's absolutely a kind of trigger for the Russian population because they did suffer, ordinary Russians and actually Ukrainians even more, in World War II. And they did secure a great victory. And the loss of so many Russian soldiers was one of the reasons why the war, war in Europe was won. So they have plenty of reasons for thinking about it. And actually, you know, one of the most moving places I've ever been to is Treptower Park in, in Berlin, in the old East Berlin. Wow. And it is a monument to the Soviet military of World War II. Huge, huge place. It's I believe it's the only place where there's an existing speech or clips from speech of, of Stalin in gold lettering on a monument because after the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of Stalin's monuments were taken down. But it is still very moving. And at the time times I've been there, there have been some coachloads of usually women from Russia who have come to pay tribute to their fathers or grandfathers. So there are great reasons why Russia should think about its role in World War II, but it should think about actually how it got into World War II as well. Yeah, Treptow Park is an incredible place, a gigantic statue of a Soviet soldier basically driving a sword through a swastika. It's like there is no there's no illusion here. It's very, very literal stuff. It's an incredible place. Um, we would be foolish to try and predict what's going to happen this week, so uh, it will just register the fact that Putin's speech is going to be significant and move on. Uh, at home, the big issue is the fallout from last week's elections, and especially the fallout in Northern Ireland, where Sinn Féin won most of the seats in Stormont 27, and they are therefore entitled to the position of First Minister. Gavin, this is the first time Stormont has seen a nationalist party with the most seats, um, but it's fair to say that for most of us outside Northern Ireland, it is a perplexing situation. What exactly has happened here, and how big a deal is it? Well, just to take one step back, I think what we have to understand is that we have an English nationalist government in uh, Boris Johnson's administration. This is not a government that governs for Britain. They have they run no councils, the Conservative Party, no councils in Scotland. They run no councils in Wales, and they've never run any councils in Northern Ireland. And in Northern Ireland, they seem to care more about whether some bloke ate a curry a long time ago in, in Durham than the Union of the United Kingdom. And it's not just me saying this. This is unionists in Northern Ireland saying it. Ian Paisley Jr. has said this is an English nationalist government. The Scottish Conservative Party, Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, wanted Boris Johnson to resign because he is so discontented. So it's not just the nationalists in Scotland or in Wales or in Northern Ireland who think that the, the government of Boris Johnson only cares about the Red Wall and doesn't care about them. It's unionists in those areas. And this is absolutely a watershed moment because what was Stormont for? It was set up in the 1920s because six counties of Ulster, not nine counties, people talk about Ulster, but the three counties, Cavan, Monaghan, Donegal, are still in the Irish Republic. Six counties were pulled out of what became the Irish Republic because it was thought that that was the only way to guarantee a Protestant and Unionist government. And that has perhaps now failed because Sinn Féin uh, have won the biggest share of the vote. They're not a majority. It doesn't seem that there's a majority for a united Ireland. I don't think there is at the moment. But there are a lot of people who haven't made up their minds. And Boris Johnson's Brexit derangement means that many people who would like to remain in the United Kingdom from a Northern Ireland perspective are now having their doubts. And they're having their doubts about whether Boris Johnson actually cares any more than he cares about this particular football. And just one other thing, you know, Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, has been wittering for ages about uh, dropping the Northern Ireland Protocol and uh, uh, 
an agreement that the British government reached and said was excellent in the case of Lord Frost and great in terms of Boris Johnson. They're now prepared to get rid of it. So the the consistency or lack of consistency of this British government in Northern Ireland is so dangerous that it could start trouble again on the streets. And I think that it is shocking to me at least, that the politics of distraction here are, oh, well, we will just break what we've agreed in a strictly limited way, according to Brandon Lewis. And meanwhile, we'll talk about whether Keir Starmer had a beer and a curry and it was some kind of entertainment rather than a work visit. That's the kind of state of our politics. And I think it it suggests to me that the tectonic plates of this United Kingdom have always been in the past five or six years have been moving apart anyway, and that this government either doesn't have a clue or doesn't really care because the headlines, at least in the papers I've been reading, are all about, can we hold on to red wall seats? Not, can we keep the union or reinvigorate the union of the United Kingdom? The DUP says it's not going to re-enter power sharing until its demands about the Northern Ireland Protocol are addressed. Uh, What this means is that the Sinn Féin leader, Michelle O'Neill, can't take up her role as First Minister until the DUP agrees to nominate a deputy first minister, because that's how how power sharing works. So we have paralysis. Has any political party ever played its hand worse than the DUP? It's difficult to think of one, isn't it? I mean, they this is the, this is the political party that uh, received several billions for Northern Ireland to keep uh, Theresa May's government in office. And I remember saying to friends in Northern unionist friends in Northern Ireland at the time, you know, those who can be bought can also be sold. And what has happened is that they be, they were completely blindsided by Boris Johnson suddenly moving the Irish border, at least in customs terms, into the middle of the Irish Sea. I mean, this is just the most extraordinary thing. The DUP have been in favour of Brexit in principle and against every kind of Brexit that's ever been in offer, including a no-deal Brexit. So they don't really know what they stand for. It's hardly surprising they're losing votes. What's interesting, actually, is that the third party now is the Alliance Party, which is a small unionist party. It wants to stay in the United Kingdom, but it's Catholics and Protestants, and they just want to get on with their lives. And Many, many people in Northern Ireland want to do that too. And the DUP's posturing appeals to some people, but has alienated many others. As you say, the further posturing about Article 16 from the British government has been in the air for almost since the the deal was signed. We're now hearing that it may well be in this week's Queen's speech, uh, which is happening on Wednesday. Uh, The EU has threatened a measured response to this. Does Britain hold any cards at all on Article 16? Not really. I mean, uh, of course, we can we can uh, break what we signed just a couple of years ago and decided was wonderful, and now it's it's absolutely terrible. We can uh, Boris Johnson can try and move the border back from the Irish Sea to somewhere else, but it just, you know, Britain is much diminished around the world now. Partly because in the United States, it's not just that Joe Biden is an Irish American and cares deeply about this, but if we have less influence in Europe, we are less significant to the United States. So this has all been done as part of Boris Johnson's Brexit derangement syndrome. And because he simply wanted to use Brexit as a tactic to get himself into office and to become leader of the Conservative Party, he, it was never part of a strategy. What do we actually want from Brexit? So we have you know, the Orwellian idea that we have a Brexit opportunities minister. Six oh. years after the vote, Jacob Rees-Mogg is trying to find out the opportunities when everybody knows we've had the opportunity to have... Uh, long queues of trucks at Dover, near where I'm speaking, uh, we have got the opportunity to be poorer. So 
this is a mess of Boris Johnson's making. Unfortunately, it is something that is having profound effects in Northern Ireland itself. And, you know, I talk to people who used to be in paramilitary groups. I think they used to be anyway, uh, on the unionist side. And they fear that there will be some violence as a result of this. I hope they're wrong, but that's what they talk about. Back in England, the election results are, are also reverberating that both the Conservative right and, in fact, rump Corbynists have been trying to trot out the story that Starmer's Labour underperformed. Um, what's your diagnosis of how the elections went for Labour? I mean, you know, councils were gained, London was, uh, Lond- you know, London is now red, uh, but the, there's this line that the red wall was not persuaded. What's your take on it? Well, it, I think the Labour Party did very well in many places, but it was also from a fairly high base from the last time elections were held mm. in these areas. Um, I mean, the Corbynite wing of the Labour Party always mystifies me. They don't really seem to want to have a Labour government, so they would prefer to have Boris Johnson. I don't. I, I really am uh, beyond sort of uh, understanding their psychology. Um, uh, in terms of the Conservative press, the idea that uh, Keir Starmer had a disappointing night, he could have done better, I'm sure, sure he could have done. But the, the real story is this is an appalling result from the Conservative and Unionist Party. Absolutely appalling result. Done badly in the south of England, done badly appallingly in Scotland and Wales, uh, nowhere in Northern Ireland because they don't run in, in Northern Ireland. And this obsession with the Red Wall, which may or may not still be interested in the botch Brexit that they've done. So, you know, we can read we can, we can read the Mail and the Telegraph and find out that um, Keir Starmer has not done as brilliantly as some people would have hoped. I think uh, that's just nonsense. And actually, the Telegraph, if I read their leader column the other day, quite rightly, really, really had a good go at Boris Johnson for actually presiding over some pretty appalling results. What what seemed to stand out was a real kind of developing hatred of Johnson in the country, and yet the, the Conservatives' only priority seems to be to save him. I mean, when you will not diagnose the problems in your own party, where, where, where will this where will this lead? I mean, it's, it's kind of electoral denialism, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's a that's a very very good way of putting it because you know we have read for uh, three years in some newspapers that Boris Johnson is a great vote winner and great asset to his party. Peter Kellner. Uh, a very respected pollster from formerly from YouGov uh, has been writing very clearly that Boris Johnson had a net negative rating in 2019 of minus I think it was minus 20 but this was surpassed by Jeremy Corbyn's minus 44 negative rating so we as a nation in 2019 voted for the old joke the evil of two lessers and get in getting uh, you know in getting johnson uh, he has never been a great vote winner for his party he's been a bit of a mold breaker and he is very very good at dominating tomorrow's headlines but he's not very good at figuring out beyond his own sort of ego which direction this country should be taken in so therefore we have to endure this constant politics of distraction stories which never go anywhere that, that you know if you read really think Boris Johnson has built 40 hospitals, then please come walk with me over the garden bridge. Um, You mentioned the Starmer beer story, which is obviously part of this politics of distraction. Uh, The Mail has now run 12 consecutive front pages on this story. It knocked the elections off their front page because evidently it's so important. They've managed to browbeat Durham police into reinvestigating a story that 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 police force had found was empty. I mean, I look at this and just think it's kind of Orbanist 
that uh, you know, a pro- proxy press can basically order the police around. And there are big questions about where this memo, supposedly um, incriminating Starmer, uh, actually came from. Who leaked it? It is an, an internal Labour Party memo. So where did it come from? Um, firstly, even asking the question, is there any substance to this, is kind of playing into the central office's hands, isn't it? They want us to be talking about this and not the the election results. But I mean, do you look at it and see, see real danger to Starmer? I, I don't, actually. Mm. He w- didn't go to Durham to have his eyes tested, unlike somebody else. Mm. He didn't go there to have, have a party. He was going there to fight an, an, a by-election. Um, and he had a curry at the end of it. If if you have ever, and I have certainly done this, been at by-election campaigns in midterms, the parties are so anxious to do well. The leader always goes there. They work Party workers, again, whatever you think of politicians of, of any party, Tories and Labour and Lib Dems and so on, they work late at night, they have late night curries, and then they, they work again. So I, I think the story is, I'm afraid, is nonsense. And the fact that it is interesting that the Mail under a new editor, fairly new editor, has decided to go for this uh, endlessly. But, you know, that's, that's uh, sells for some people. The Conservative Central Office is uh, describing it internally as their most successful operation against Starmer. So it clearly is a politicised thing. Ah, it's not a... Yes. Well done then. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, on Wednesday, we have the state opening of Parliament and the Queen's speech, although apparently Prince Charles might do it as the Queen's health issues continue. Uh, the Mail, them again, is trumpeting a Brexit bills bonanza to tear up EU laws, which will supposedly help the cost of living. Amongst these bills that are going to co- help with the cost of your gas bill, Gavin, are the privatisation of Channel 4, a Brexit Freedoms Bill to give ministers power to repeal any EU legislation that's been rolled over without a Commons vote, an online safety bill which has been accused of threatening free speech, and a higher education free speech bill which seems designed to create culture war Ferraris because it is going to ban no platforming and enable people to claim compensation if they're not allowed to speak at universities. How much of this is going to help your gas bill, Gavin? Oh, I, th- I, can't, I can see my gas bill actually cratering now. I, I, <laughs> I mean, where, where do you begin? Well, part of this is, of course, the, the war on woke and the virtue signalling. Well, maybe we should turn it on its head and say that this is the, the, the war of those who wishes to remain asleep to how awful things are in this country. And they are vice signalling. You know, this is a series of Channel 4. Why rewrite a hit? You know, it's just really silly. It's just really, really oh. silly. But it's, as we know, uh, we have a culture secretary who, to put it kindly, is, does not entirely seem to understand her brief. The Brexit Freedoms Bill, this is like the Brexit Opportunities Minister. I mean, it's just a kind of Orwellian uh, stupidity uh, to tear up laws and to do it to do it very quickly. There is a serious point here, which is the way in which in a country with an unwritten constitution, some of our parliamentary uh, procedures and norms of behaviour are being torn up by this government. And this is this is perhaps one of them. I'd be interesting to know if some of our constitutional experts have a have an opinion on this. Um, and and the the whole free speech thing, the whole cult is just simply yet another culture wars attempt to stir things up and stir up tomorrow morning's headlines. The the thing about culture wars is they are about creating problems, not solving problems. And they are about, again, tomorrow morning's headlines, not about what kind of country do we want to be in five years' time. But they work for some people and they clearly work for the mail. Otherwise, they wouldn't be on the front page. It's a pretty thin agenda, though, isn't it? Considering this government came in on the ticket of levelling up about which still, down three years down the line, nothing has happened. 
it's it's pretty poor. Isn't yeah, it? well, the, the question of leveling up has always been, to me, a, a slogan in search of a policy anyway. But one of the questions about leveling up, and I've tried to put this to people in Westminster, is when you say that, do you mean that things in Darlington and Hartlepool and Doncaster are going to get better so people will stay there because you're going to put so much money in and the opportunities in those places are going to be better? Or by levelling up, do you mean what we have seen for the past, well, certainly since World War II, which is essentially people move to centres where they can make more money, which is why London has grown and grown and grown. And one of our big problems in our in our country is that London, the greater London area with about 15 million people in it, has got a bigger population than Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland put together. Now, do you mean that people in Doncaster, for example, should stay at home because uh, stay in their area, which they love, because the opportunities are going to be there. Well, where are they being created? How are you creating them? And there there doesn't seem to be any answer to this. So my conclusion is levelling up is nonsense. But, uh, you know, I may be proved wrong, but it has to be a long-term strategic plan. And this doesn't seem to be a long-term strategic plan at all. Finally, with a tiny, tiny remaining bit of culture war, this is a happy story. Uh, it came out yesterday, but we can probably expect a lot more gnashing of teeth in the coming days. People terribly angry about the first Black Doctor Who, or rather the first full-time Black Doctor Who. Don't forget Joe Martin. She's uh, also part of the gamut. Shuti Gatwa of Sex Education fame will take over in the TARDIS from 2023, and all the right people are furious about it. I'm delighted about this. What did you make of this, Gavin? Well, I love this. This is people who can suspend disbelief enough to believe that Daleks are a threat to humanity. <laughs> they don't like a young black guy who's a talented actor being Doctor Who. Um, yes. What planet are these people on? Maybe that's exactly the right question. Maybe they are on some kind of third, 15th dimension planet Tharg, where everything is run by very <laughs> large, <laughs> superannuated white gentlemen. I have no idea. I think this is... If this wasn't so serious, it would be hilarious. And it's serious because there are a lot of racists and sexists, unfortunately, in our country who just don't like change. And they would like to live, I don't know when, I don't know when they'd like to live, Tudor Britain, I suspect. Well, I was quite encouraged by this because it was the only people who complained about it were exactly who you would expect. It was Darren Grimes and all of the other usual rentable, but the overwhelming majority of people were really happy about it and really excited about it. It's a new way to reinvigorate the show. I've never seen him in sex education. I'm told that he's absolutely fantastic. I am fully on board with this one. And um, yeah. Yeah, why not? I think it's brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. And you're abs- you're also right. It is the rent-a-gob. It's not even rent-a-mob. It's the rent-a-gob of the far right who uh, probably should be sitting there watching GB News and fulminating because it's too left-wing. Yes. That's not my Doctor Who, they scream. Anyway, we can't predict exactly what's going to happen this week, but here are some of the things that you'll be talking about. Gavin, thanks for getting up early to talk about them with me. Thank you very much. That is the end of Start Your Week, listeners. We hope you found it useful. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and don't forget to have a look at our Patreon page to find out how you can support us. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out. We'll be back tomorrow with the weekly panel show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. Start Your Week was presented by Andrew Harrison with Gavin Esson. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. Producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. And group editor is Andrew Harrison. The Bunker theme tune is from Kenny Dickinson. And The Bunker 
is a Podmasters production. <laughs>